0: It's easy to badmouth reality television, not take it seriously, call it lowbrow, a guilty pleasure, or straight up garbage. I've heard it all. But reality TV is as much a lens into our cultural zeitgeist as the latest issue of The New Yorker. Whether you want to admit it, though, you probably know the names Snooky, Lisa Vanderpump, or Kim Kardashian. So, How did we even get here? A place where two dozen men or women compete to find a soulmate on national television. A place where people will put everything on the line, including their survival, for a million dollars. A place where a Kardashian's offhand comment can make a company's stock plummet. This is Spectacle, an unscripted history of reality TV. And I'm your host, Mariah Smith. I'm a TV writer, comedian, and producer who watches, studies, writes about, and in all ways consumes more than my fair share of reality TV. You may have read my column in New York Magazine's The Cut where I point out the continuity errors on Keeping Up with the Kardashians. Or you've read my review of Lisa Vanderpump's bar Tom Tom. Shout out to the fish tacos. And speaking of Lisa, I also worked on Watch What Happens Live with Andy Cohen. Point is, I'm not only a student of the genre, but I've also worked in the reality TV sphere, and I want people to love and appreciate it as much as I do. So join me as we reconsider reality TV. The good, the bad, and the ridiculous. In each episode of the podcast, we'll dive into a particular show and explore the way it shaped our culture and how our culture shaped it. We'll speak to people who know these shows best. Like journalists. And I think the kind of beltway political establishment, the people that brag about never never having watched the Kardashians, it's like, well, then you're not doing your job. Critics. If we see casting for conflict in the real world, we see casting for conflict, but now let's also like have them be starving in Survivor. Comedians. I always say, like, reality TV is nothing without villains, and this show is just 70% villains. Cast members. I was called like Old Maid of the Week or people like Elizabeth Hasselbeck on The View saying that I was gonna be a bachelorette for the rest of my life. And we'll talk to the fans who have watched the genre explode over the past three decades. We'll nerd out, we'll gossip, we'll break the fourth wall. We'll learn about story producing, racist casting, or editing that reinforces messed up tropes. We'll talk about episodes that networks have buried that you can't even stream. Oh yeah, we are going to get into it. But first, let's go back to before the real world, before Real Housewives, before reality TV was a thing. Let's start with the series that started it all. It's like The Wonder Years meets Santa Barbara, the soap opera. You're gonna love it. This is episode one, An American Family. to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Do you ever
2: wonder how celebrities order food? Like, is Sarah Paulson a Diet Coke or a regular Coke girlie? <laughs> Some peasant Coke? No.
0: The camera opens on Santa Barbara's coastline. It pans away over the beach and past freeways to a man standing on a hill. The Santa Ynez Mountains are behind him as he speaks right to the camera.
4: During the next hour, you will see the first in a series of programs entitled An American Family.
0: That man on the hill is Craig Gilbert. He's a white guy with dark, slicked back hair and a salt and pepper beard. He's wearing denim from head to toe. Today, you might think he'd look a little bit like a hipster dad. This tape is from 1971, and the whole scene is a bit forced. Back then, Craig was a producer for New York City's PBS affiliate, WNET. He was already a respected documentarian, and before that, he produced a film on the legendary anthropologist Margaret Mead. Here, he's introducing his latest show, or should I say his latest subjects, the Loud family of Santa Barbara, California. A family who would change his career forever.
4: From May 30th, 1971 to January 1st, 1972, the family was filmed as they went about their daily routine.
0: The Louds, he says in so many words, are the personification of westward expansion they came here to raise their five kids in Santa Barbara. You know, a place that seems kind of perfect for raising a family. It's idyllic. 78 degrees in the summer and 65 degrees in the winter, he says.
4: This is the setting for our series. This is the home of the William C. Loud family. The Louds are neither average nor typical. No family is. They are not the American family. They are simply an American family.
0: The B-roll of Santa Barbara cuts to a montage of the Louds. There's Bill talking on the phone, that's the dad. His wife, Pat, walking around outside. There are five kids doing stuff kids do, like playing the guitar, fixing their hair, cleaning their room. Their faces get arranged like tiles in a Brady Bunch-esque way. But, unlike the Brady Bunch, you know things are not going to work out perfectly. Because when the title credits come up, An American Family, the word family shatters like glass.
3: And Pat, loud, when she saw the series title film, which I suspect was when the show was actually first broadcast said, wow, they're breaking us up before we've even begun, which is true.
0: That's Jeffrey Ruoff. He's a documentary filmmaker and film historian who teaches at Dartmouth. And he wrote a book on the series called An American Family, A Televised Life. That first episode starts at the end, the very last day the cameras were rolling. It was New Year's Eve 1971.
3: An American family cross cuts between Pat at home with her children who are having a big party, celebrating New Year's, and Bill, who's out, celebrating New Year's with another woman. And so from the very first episode, you learn that the Louds are going to separate. And so everybody then is watching And this, too, brought viewers to the show.
0: When the Louds agreed to go on the show back then, they had no idea what they were getting themselves into. There wasn't a reference point. Documentary filmmakers weren't going into suburbia to film Americans' most private moments. When the show aired, it enthralled audiences. A single episode would get 10 million viewers, That was the golden age of television. For example, Happy Days got an average of 22 million views for a single episode in 1976. But today, with streaming and all the networks, a TV show is hard-pressed to get over 1 million eyes, let alone 10 million. This attention, it would catapult the Louds into overnight celebrities, An American family paved the way for an entirely new form of programming, a new genre of television that would fully change our culture, what we now call reality TV.
4: There is no question that the presence of our camera crews and their equipment had an effect on the Louds, one which is impossible to evaluate. It is equally true that the Louds had an effect on us, The filmmakers.
0: An American Family was certainly producer Craig Gilbert's baby. But he wasn't really on set, if you can even call it that. He was in New York most of the time. The crew, the people there practically 24-7, were a husband and wife team.
5: I'm Susan Raymond, and I was the sound recordist and the director of the um, series, I'm Alan
2: Raymond. Uh, Actually, our screen credits are filmmakers, the filmmakers of the series. I was the director of photography and filmed it all as well.
0: Alan and Susan were married five years at this point. Working together made the long hours away from home a lot easier. So tell me about when you were first pitched the project, what were you told about it?
5: We had worked with the producer before, and he had this concept that he had to do a California family uh, because the, the California family represented the future. The American dream. In
0: 1971, Santa Barbara was sexy. It screamed bikinis, beach clubs, year-round tans, and Pat and Bill were part of all of that.
5: Well, they're a very attractive couple. And they had been married 20 years, and Pat was a beautiful, I'd have to say, homemaker. She loved her children. She had five teenage children, each one a year apart. And Bill was the salesman. He could talk to anyone about
0: anything. She wasn't kidding. Pat was gorgeous. She had long, dark hair that was frequently pulled back in a half ponytail and she wore those seventy sunglasses that take up half your face that shaded her big brown eyes and perfectly arched eyebrows. Many years later, Diane Lane played Pat in a movie based on the show. It was spot-on casting. Bill was tall, blonde, and always in a suit, just like Tim Robbins when he played him. They had five kids, Lance, Kevin, Grant, Delilah, and Michelle. They seemed like one really big, happy family when Susan and Alan showed up with their cameras. And it had this shiny veneer that hinted at something darker underneath.
5: We had no idea we were going to be in their family's life for such a long period of time. And really, truly did not know all of the drama that was going to unfold before our eyes. That was all completely a surprise.
0: Alan and Susan Raymond filmed at the Louds' picturesque ranch-style house for 10 hours a day. Today, we know camera crews follow reality TV stars 24-7. But back then, it was unheard of. To pull it off, the Raymonds had to bond with the Louds, embed with them the way journalists get in the trenches with soldiers.
5: You had to... Um, have them trust you because you were coming into their life daily. And that took a while. And to get them comfortable to be on camera and to understand who you are.
0: But the cameras weren't always rolling. Every day, they made split-second decisions on what to film. They'd hit the road with Bill, going to the Southwest where he sold strip mining equipment, or traveled with Pat up to Oregon to visit her mom. They'd hang around the kids, gathering hours upon hours of tape of them goofing off around the house. Like, when they spray each other with what is either shaving cream or whipped cream. I cannot tell. Hey, watch where you're spraying (laughs) that. Pat playing the piano, Delilah leaning against a car in the driveway flirting with her boyfriend, Grant playing with the band. One of the favorite Louds was Lance. He was the oldest and at that point had already moved to New York City. On Memorial Day weekend, Pat went to go visit him. That meant the Raymonds went to Manhattan too.
1: I feel like we should hone in on that for one second because I think that New York trip has one of the most iconic moments on the show.
0: This is my producer, Joanna Clay. I'll bring her in from time to time.
1: So Pat shows up in New York and Lance is living at the Chelsea Hotel.
0: And can I just add, she is looking glamorous as always.
1: <laughs> yes. And I'm not sure what she knows about the Chelsea, like if she's, if she thinks she's checking into a normal hotel.
0: Oh my God, it's this artsy, grungy scene. I mean, it's 1971 in New York.
1: Exactly. And I think it catches her off guard. She seems kind of nervous, like definitely not relaxed. On the fourth floor. Yes,
5: 431.
1: You. Is there someone? Yes. There?
5: If you would like
1: to go on She's walking down these hallways, downstairs. super confused. Which way is
4: 431? Ashley. Lad?
1: Yeah,
0: oh, this is so hot. Hi. 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 It's nice to meet you. I look mean, really nice.
5: I thought you were going to come down and, and be in the lobby and I got down there and you
0: weren't there. You look so nice, yeah. You Thank mentioned you. Pat yeah, might so. think this is a normal hotel, but the Chelsea wasn't just any hotel.
1: Yeah, no, the Chelsea is an institution in New York. It had a lot of history. Famous artists, writers live there, Tennessee Williams, Jack Kerouac. But anyway, Lance is there, he's living there, and he's introducing her to his friends, and Pat seems sort of overwhelmed. Like, she's cool and seems excited, but she's also taking this all in.
0: I remember she was just getting distracted by the mess, like, by an ashtray that was around. Like, oh, wait, are they smoking?
1: Yeah, (laughs) just like that low-key mom passive-aggressiveness. You boys need some policing in this room, you know? (laughs) Why? Well, because it's not altogether, you know, (laughs) tidy.
4: Well, it is a bit dirty, but...
1: I think it's relatable. Your parents come to visit, you know, you move to your dorm or your first apartment, whatever it is. Totally, totally. They're
0: excited for you to be on your own in the big city, but they're also kind of worried.
1: Yeah, Lance is obviously excited she's there, and he announces he's taking her out that night to a show.
0: Oh, my God, but it is not just any show. He's taking her to a play at La Mama, and La Mama, for those of you who don't know, is this famous experimental theater in the East Village. Vain victory with Jackie Curtis. It's the ultimate of the underground, honey. You'll just think it's so neat.
1: People might not know Jackie Curtis now, but Jackie Curtis was a big deal.
0: She was an Andy Warhol superstar.
1: Yes. She's mentioned in that Lou Reed song, Walk on the Wild Side. Jackie
4: is just speeding away. Thought she was James Dean for a day.
1: Anyway, I think Pat has no clue she's essentially going to a drag show. Although, Jackie Curtis didn't like the word drag very much, to be fair, and Andy Warhol even said, Jackie Curtis isn't a drag queen. She's an artist, a pioneer, without a frontier.
3: Your pockets weren't bare when you came in.
2: <laughs> What's
3: the difference? It's all the same in New York.
0: Aired in the episode, and I mean, that's kind of nuts for 1971. This isn't HBO we're talking about. This is PBS. Back then, TV was still pretty cookie-cutter. You know, All in the Family, Columbo, The Cosby Show. I mean, you're getting more gender and racial diversity in TV shows for sure, but not LGBTQ diversity.
2: I'm sure for people, like, sitting at home watching, all of a sudden to see, a, you know, a Jackie Curtis play uh, with Candy Darling was, I'm sure, really shocking. I mean, not just a little shocking, but really shocking. I mean, I don't you don't even see stuff like that
0: on TV today. Also, Lance is gay. He didn't proclaim, I'm gay, but he didn't hide it either. And that was a big deal. Here's Jeffrey Ruoff again.
3: So Lance Loud was the first openly gay person on television. Blew a lot of people's minds. Uh, Some people hated him uh, and other people adored him. But he was a, a, a breakthrough character.
0: Keep in mind, the show aired in 1973. The same year, the American Psychiatric Association removed homosexuality as a mental illness. So the show really was a time capsule of a big shift in American culture. The same way reality TV is a time capsule of a moment today. While there's some major moments on the show like that one, an American family isn't like reality TV as we know it today. There wasn't story producing, there weren't plot lines, a lot of the show is mundane. I mean, there's literally scenes of Bill reading the mail. The Raymonds were kind of surprised to see those scenes stay in.
2: So it's interesting to go back and look at the pacing of the show and to see how often, you know, the individual scenes were allowed to play. I mean, one of the things that, I've often said when people ask me to try to compare it with today's reality television is that the pacing is so different. Uh, You know, reality television is sort of hyper-edited or that, I mean, anyone, any executive would allow something like that to go on the air.
5: Well, I don't think they would allow you. No one has the time and patience to just let
0: life unfold. The Raymonds were observers. They just watched. Producers today would troubleshoot before filming at a loud restaurant. They'd arrange to go at three o'clock when it's empty. But the Raymonds were old school, hands off. <laughs> Joanna and I noticed it particularly with
1: this one lunch scene. So Pat just got back from New York visiting Lance, and she's talking to Bill about it.
0: Yes, they're at a restaurant. And then that was so kind of strange. Lance's world is so different.
4: I thought you might move out of that Chelsea and go to some proper hotel. Oh, no. Oh, no. You, you, you enjoyed the, um, after the hardship. The, after though. the
1: shock
5: wore off, it was really so fascinating. I don't think I would have had such a good time anywhere else.
1: It's a sweet scene because you can tell how much Pat loves
0: Lance. And how genuinely happy she is for him. But you also, in that same moment, sense a disconnect between Pat and Bill. Mm hmm, totally.
5: But he's so wonderful, you know. That he really does have some spark of life that I've never seen in anybody. He walked down the street and he'd sing and, you know, and dance and just so much life. And it's so
1: funny to talk to. Yeah, like you were saying before, compared to reality TV today, which is so produced, An American Family is truly like a home movie, like a really beautiful, kind of sad home movie.
0: There were hints along the way that Bill and Pat were having marital issues, but they were subtle. They weren't sneaking kisses or holding hands. They barely spent time together, but that's not that weird for a big family. And considering Bill is gone for work all the time, they just seemed independent. For example, in episodes four and five, they take separate vacations. In episode six, they go to a community event. The fiesta is at a restaurant called El Paseo. Again, it is so loud. You would never hear something like this on TV today. You can even hear a live mariachi band playing in the background. They don't even sit next to each other, and they just seem... off. Bill is complaining about work to a woman sitting next to him. Pat is telling folks about the fire that almost got their house. Later, Bill and Pat move next to each other. Bill is well-lit. It's easy to see him. But you can really only see a profile of Pat. He tells her he's having a hard time sleeping in the house. Maybe he should stay in an apartment in Tucson.
4: be a very wise solution?
0: He goes, I think it would be a wise solution.
2: I don't see any other one,
0: frankly. It's so loud in the scene that you can barely hear Pat's remarks, but she agrees and she calls him ludicrous and schizophrenic. She says if it weren't so sad, it would make me laugh. Oh, yeah, it is pretty intense. I mean, it's a strange enough thing to say to your spouse in public, but what makes it weirder is their affect. Pat is blank, like no emotions, and Bill is practically smiling. If anyone was watching, they would assume they're maybe making plans for the weekend. Literally, no indication either was upset, other than, you know, the actual words. This is what made the Louds so real and so revealing. A couple episodes later, Pat tells her brother and sister-in-law that she's thinking about separating from Bill. There's signs he's been unfaithful. And that leads us up to probably the most memorable scene in the 12-episode series, when Pat asks Bill for a divorce.
3: Bill, uh, in episode nine, returns from uh, a trip, a work trip, at night. His son, uh, Grant, picks him up at the airport and brings him home.
4: You wanna grab that light little thing? I uh, can I don't know how that thing can be so heavy.
0: Here's Susan, one of the filmmakers, again. Grant
5: is told to tell his father not to come home, and he can't, he can't do it. He just cannot say the words. So Bill just comes home and walks in the door. And Pat is surprised that he's come home, because that wasn't the plan. Anything else? Well, uh,
3: did did Grant say anything to you? No, about what? No. Oh, come on. Oh, I know.
5: You know there's a problem. What's your problem? I just... uh, that's really keen. Um, I have uh, spoken to a lawyer, and uh, this is his card. He would like to have you get in touch with him, okay. and I'd like to have
2: you move out. It's just like that. Well, that's a fair deal.
3: I figured you'd
5: think that. You're there to film it. So we did, and it unfolded, and she said the famous words I've seen a lawyer, here's his card, which is classic. And he just, he sits down and says,
3: Well, then, I don't have to unpack my bag, do I?
5: And the whole thing unfolds in such drama and such real life that most people, when they talk about the series, find that the most unnerving scene.
0: Pat is very matter-of-fact. It's almost like she asks something innocuous like, Hey, Bill, can you take out the trash? Hey, Bill, can we get a divorce? Bill seems unfazed. And although you can't really tell with the camera angles, Pat and Bill aren't alone. Three of their kids are there, watching this. Grant, Delilah, and Michelle.
2: And then, of course, he got up, and uh, instead of just getting his bag and walking out, he insisted on, you know, making some phone calls, called his secretary, called a motel to book a room. And that was sort of very difficult because... Pat went back down the hallway to hide in, into one of the daughters' rooms to kind of hide. And that was a tricky shot to pull off because at that point I really did feel that I you know, we were kind of pushing it in terms of intruding on their lives and Fortunately, he, Bill himself, decided to walk down the hallway and have this sort of blockheaded conversation with her about, you know, he's going to this hotel and all that. So you could see her, you know, how hurt she was and how, you know, devastated she was.
5: When I asked Bill, well, what was it like? He said, I didn't see you at all. I was just thinking about Patty.
0: In the years since the show, Susan says everyone brings up that scene. And really, it was historically significant, too. California had just passed no-fault divorce laws, and states across the country would follow suit. Because before then, you had to have a reason to get divorced, like infidelity, cruelty, or abandonment. And you had to prove that. So if your partner had a good defense and the court denied it, you're stuck in a marriage you don't want to be in. Now, women could get out whether their husband wanted the divorce or not.
5: So we hit a nerve in America at that time, because the divorce rate was really starting to take off. So that scene resonates with so many people. It's devastating.
0: An American Family was filmed for that seven-month stretch, ending in January 1972. Then the Raymonds handed off all of their film, 300 hours worth, to editors. Post production took a year. The Raymonds were the ones who were on the ground with the Louds, the ones who had the rapport. It must have been weird to see the show for the first time, to see what was made of all those moments they captured.
5: So the day that the film was presented to the world, critical screening at the Museum of Modern Art, and we went with Lance, because we were good friends of Lance, and we sat there with him and watched the whole film. And I must say, including Lance, we were all stunned. We couldn't speak. We actually didn't know how we felt about it. It took us a long time to try to understand how they had organized... Uh, You know, 300 hours. But, But eventually what I realized is we followed the family literally all day long. And what they did in the editing is they took that feeling and that momentum of having it unfold before your eyes. So it really had a sense of immediacy, like you were there with the family.
0: Let's take a quick break and hear a word from our sponsors. It's hard to say if production changed the Louds, but the broadcast certainly did. Seemingly overnight, they became stars. Albert Brooks spoofed the show.
3: I want to tell you about a new movie called Real Life. Real Life tells the story of what happens when a real family's life is turned into a major motion picture.
0: SNL did a sketch. Ah! president. <laughs> and they were on the Dick Cavett show. To build off of that, you know, <laughs> when I saw myself billed as homo of the year 1971, I was really
4: despondent for a while. I was going a seat today, but I decided to kind
2: of Type cast me too much. Close the door on, on being uh, It's sort of fun like, to play
5: against the type
3: that's been created for you. Yeah, know, no one likes it. to put in boxes, you know, and say, This is yeah. a. Uh, this
5: became the first media circus, the first phenomenon of reality TV stars, because they became famous for just being themselves. And the media loved them. And the audiences loved them. And everybody tuned in and everybody watched them. And the louds, I think, had their own fun. The girls had pen pals from Sweden. They went on the
2: dating game. Yeah. Oh. And
5: Pat wrote a book.
0: Bill had offers of marriage from women. An American family invented a new style of television. The docuseries laid the groundwork for what we know as reality TV today. And I also believe
5: that it was a sociological, ethnographic film in some way, that we were actually documenting family life in 1971 at the beginning of a decade. And that decade had major change, and it It had gay rights, it had women's rights, the divorce rate went up. Um, America was changing, and Margaret Mead was the one who actually said that this really was a new invention is great as the novel. I mean, who could even believe that kind of, of critical acclaim? That's
0: fantastic. It changed TV forever. People couldn't believe what the filmmakers captured. They couldn't understand how the Louds let them into their lives, how they trusted them. And after the show, everyone still followed the Louds. Pat wrote that memoir, Lance became a well-known columnist, writing for magazines like Interview and The Advocate. By 2001, he was dying from complications related to Hep C and HIV, but reached out to the Raymonds one last time.
5: He had a couple of dying wishes. One was for us to make another film, and was the other was for his parents to get together. And they did. And they lived together for about 15 years after Lance passed. It was a platonic relationship, but there was that love was still there in that relationship. So it's an American story, American love story.
0: The docuseries is revered today by anyone who writes or studies reality TV. A pivotal moment in television history. But in the months and years that followed, the show was controversial. Everyone knew the Louds and had opinions on them. People thought Pat was vapid, superficial. Writers attacked Lance for being gay. Here's Jeffrey Ruoff again.
3: Critics wrote that uh, their shopping carts overflow, but their minds are empty. Criticism of Lance was particularly vicious, including in places like the New York Times.
0: Where Anne Royfe, an important feminist and novelist, called him an evil flower, a Goya-esque emotional dwarf, whatever that means. With all the negative press, Alan and Susan buried the show on their resumes to get work. Uh,
2: we actually, for years, wouldn't even tell potential subjects for our documentary films that we had made the series because we had a couple of bad experiences where we would start shooting a documentary and then in the middle of it, people would find out that, you know, we had made the American Family series and decide they didn't want to be in a- <laughs> in our film anymore. I mean, you know, it was really crazy. People thought we had caused the divorce, but in retrospect, when people look back on it, they realize what a milestone
0: show it was. And according to Jeffrey Ruoff, PBS distanced itself from the show, too. PBS was educational. It was family-friendly. And the Louds stirred the pot. They got attention.
3: An American Family was so controversial and PBS doesn't really want controversy <laughs> or they didn't really want it then. So that's one of the reasons that the series sort of disappeared from film history, television history for a while because they never rebroadcast it. And uh, and partly that was because they, you know, they got a tremendous amount of flack from critics and from the Louds. And so they... They didn't want to revisit it.
0: You can't stream the original broadcast of An American Family anywhere.
3: You know, every Ken Burns film is is in every library across America. There are no libraries that have copies of An American Family.
0: And that's a shame. An American Family isn't something we should bury or forget about. It started it all.
1: This season on Spectacle.
0: You might think of reality TV as a guilty pleasure. Basic, basic, basic. Something you watch when nobody else is around.
1: So, like, I have had sex, and Jesus still loves me.
0: Nothing more than an escape. Let it be
5: in the end the way Mother Nature intended it to be, for the snake to eat the rat.
0: But at some point, it became a lot more than that. Kim Kardashian West met with President Trump yesterday, and it turns out she was there for something legit. I think it's about time we take reality TV seriously. The Real Housewives and the Fab Five are as important to our culture as today's New York Times. I know it sounds crazy, but I talk to experts about it, and they tell me I'm right. I mean, what do we learn about Survivor? We learn that we don't live in a meritocracy. It doesn't matter how well you perform at challenges. If people decide that you are not their kind, uh, they don't want you on their tribe, you get voted out. And that's a really sobering reality to kind of realize about our society. In each episode, we'll dive into the ways these shows changed our culture in the last 30 years, and we'll relive the scenes that stuck with us talking to the people who were actually there, like Queer Eyes' Bobby Burke.
3: I think that one of our superpowers is the fact that we open up about our struggles and the things that have affected us most in life, both positive and negative, because that's what people want to see.
0: We'll go back to season one of The Real World, where a white girl explained racism to a black man.
1: I don't consider myself racist in any way. I don't even know how it ended up like that.
0: We'll dig into the latest shows like The Circle, a show that's both dystopian and sweet.
3: If you would have played you, you still would have been
0: my number one imaginary homegirl. What do these shows say about us, about who we are as a society?
1: It's very magical to watch these people just lie to themselves
0: over and over and over. It's fascinating to watch the delusion of love. Subscribe and listen wherever you get your podcasts. Spectacle is a production of Neon Hum Media. The show is hosted and co-produced by yours truly. Lead producer Joanna Clay reported and wrote this episode. Jonathan Hirsch and Shara Morris are our executive producers. It was edited by Katherine St. Louis. Our associate producer is Chloe Chobel. Our engineer is Scott Somerville. Thanks to Andrew Epen for his original music. Laura Bullard is our fact checker. And special thanks to Raquel Gates, Crystal Genesis, Vikram Patel, and Shauna Shiro. Follow us on Twitter and Instagram at spectacle underscore pod. I'm Mariah Smith. See you next week.